Welcome to World of DAS, a show for data enthusiasts. I'm your host, Warren Hoffman, CEO of SafeGraph. For more conversations, videos, and transcripts, visit safegraph.com slash podcasts. Hello, fellow data nerds. My guest today is Jacob Helberg. Jake is the author of Wires of War and a senior advisor at the Stanford University Center of Geopolitics and Technology. And he's the co-chair at the Brookings Institution China Strategy Working Group. Jake, welcome to World of DAS. Thanks for having me. You argue in the wires of war that China has a leg up on America when it comes to control over infrastructure. I think essentially the argument is that American innovation is very dependent on Chinese hardware, but Chinese innovation has a lot less dependence on America. And that it seems very difficult to reverse this dependency. Are there any silver bullets? There are two levels of dependencies that I describe in the book. There is the supply chains dependency, meaning that we rely on China because China has an enormous proportion of the supply chains that our companies rely on. And then there's a dependency that I describe through the prism of information networks, which really dials to the heart of debates we've been having about Huawei and ZTE. Our government has already taken steps to ban Huawei and ZTE from the most critical parts of our critical infrastructure. But both dependencies open us up to two types of risk. There is the access risk, which is our ability to access those networks, meaning if China cuts us off from being able to access our supply chains or if China tampers with our ability to access our information networks. The latter doesn't apply so much to us because, like I said, we've banned, for the most part, the use of Huawei and ZT in our critical infrastructure. But it does apply in several countries abroad who have not taken similar steps. And then there's the integrity risk, meaning the risk that China uses its control of these two types of networks to embed backdoors into the infrastructure, which could be incredibly detrimental and erosive to the national sovereignty of countries around the world. Today, interestingly, I'm sure you saw the headlines of China shutting down Shenzhen due to a COVID outbreak. I am skeptical that the real motive behind the shutdown is actually a COVID outbreak. But regardless of what the motive is, we're going to now bear the brunt of that cost. So Shenzhen is going to be shut down. Shenzhen happens to be the world's factory floor. That means we could face shortages from everything from cars to iPhones in the US. That means that we're probably going to have more inflationary pressures. And that means that American consumers are going to be paying a real financial cost in the form of higher inflation, which is basically a tax on consumers because we lack our ability to access supply chains. There's no doubt that reversing these dependencies is difficult, but I would argue that it's going to be even more difficult not to reverse them. If you were the president, where would you start reversing these dependencies? The three things that the U.S. government can do to accelerate this, the first, levy trade barriers with China, meaning tariffs, at the same time that you lower trade barriers with other countries that we're comfortable trading with. So you can easily imagine a world where we say, okay, companies are allowed to trade 0% tax-free with these different collection of different countries that we consider to be friendly countries. And at the same time, we levy tariffs on goods coming from China. That allows clear rules of the road where the private sector can then make decisions about where they're going to allocate their different CapEx investments in different countries. These CapEx for a big manufacturing plant 
it's often a 10, 20 year planning horizon. And these tariffs seem to change quite a bit over the years. Over the last 10 years, it seems like tariffs are going like this all the time. How do we give the assurity to business people that these are in place for the long haul? The way to do this is through statutory law. Things change when the executive branch has the discretion to make changes from administration to administration. When Congress passes a law, it's very hard for that law to change. So if Congress passes a law that instates reforms to change our economic relationship with China, that would fundamentally provide the private sector the kind of long-term horizon that they need in order to plan 10-year investments. And the way you see it, there should be a basket of countries, some maybe more advanced countries like South Korea, some of them maybe more emerging countries like Vietnam or something that we should be moving toward. Absolutely. The goal here isn't to completely throw out globalization. The goal here is to factor in, in our macroeconomic policy, the basic fact that China has unique characteristics that present real national security risks to us. That will be true today in five years. As long as the CCP is in power, that will probably be the case. The goal is to think about, with that assumption in mind, how do we recalibrate our economic relationship more closely in line with our national security agenda? Globalization, meaning us being more integrated with other countries, has a lot of real benefits. And it's not because we recalibrate with China that we need to disentangle trade with other countries. It's worked very well with trade with a lot of our allies. And so ultimately, we can absolutely lower barriers with some of our allies at the same time that we raise them with China. Historically, when nations rise, they sometimes come in conflict with more established nations. But that isn't always the case. When Germany overtook UK, we saw World War I. But when the U.S. overtook the U.K., we saw the U.S. and the U.K. actually get closer together. China is clearly a rising power. What are some of the things we could do to avoid a conflict between China and the U.S.? Well, the primary difference between those two power transitions that you point out is that Germany was a revanchist autocratic regime and that the U.S. was a democracy. And that it's a statistical fact that democracies are almost always less likely to start wars than authoritarian regimes, and even less likely to be at war with each other. This strikes at the democratic peace theory idea that democracies don't go to war with each other. Autocracies obviously are very prone to war. It's just a statistical fact. People will argue whether it's correlation versus causation, but that has been the pattern. With the benefit of hindsight, We know that the policy of appeasement in the 30s precipitated and magnified the very kind of war that the UK tried to avoid. The takeaway is that diplomacy with a war-seeking authoritarian regime can actually be dangerous without credible deterrence. When you ask the question, how do we prevent history from repeating itself? I think the answer is deterrence, deterrence, deterrence. The basic idea of deterrence boils down to a simple equation. It's that do the costs of carrying out an attack outweigh the benefits? And we need that equation to be credible. And we need our adversaries to feel that if they try carrying out an attack, the cost will far outweigh the benefits. I wrote an article last year 
that basically made the case for decentralizing American deterrence. Today, we have alliance frameworks with our allies. And unfortunately, those alliances are all far too reliant on the American military. The reason that that's a negative feature is because it actually weakens the credibility of deterrence. When you have a network and that network is so centralized in a single node in that network, you basically have a paradigm and a higher risk where you have a single point of failure. If that node that's the most critical node in the network gets taken out, it takes out the entire network. If you think about this analogy between the way that information networks work and alliance networks, if all of our allies rely on the US military, you could have a situation where if the periphery of the network gets attacked, and if we decide we're not going to send troops in or we're not going to intervene, that basically undermines the credibility of the entire alliance networks. If you have a network that's far more decentralized, where we have our military capabilities, but our allies also have their own military capabilities and are able to defend themselves or inflict costs on an attacker, that is a deterrence framework that is far, far more credible. I'm very much a proponent of arming our allies, which is a shift in policy because for a long time, the US had a policy to discourage allies being armed and building up their militaries. You're talking about Japan, South Korea, Australia, Vietnam, like those types of countries. Absolutely. And one of the takeaways with Ukraine is that we should be supplying far more lethal weapons to Taiwan, for example. Oh, in Taiwan as well. The U.S. has in some ways an advantage in the military where in some ways is a downside. We've been constantly at war for the last 20 years. But the upside is we have a lot of trained fighters who know how to fight. Certainly, that's probably true with Russia as well and a few other countries where they've been constantly at war. But most countries, including China, I don't know that there's any soldier in China that's had bullets fired at them in the last 20 years. And that's probably true for most of those other countries in Asia that you mentioned. How does one prepare their military in a way if these countries like Japan wanted to beef up their military? Do they have to go into Afghanistan and have a morass like we did for the last 20 years? Or are there ways to prepare without fighting? It's going to be very hard for them to get the same kind of practical on the field exposure than the type that our military has had exposure to. But a lot of these wars are going to be different than the American intervention in Afghanistan or Iraq. Wars between advanced economies are going to mostly be fought with hardware, with military hardware. Ultimately, supplying ships and anti-ship cruise missiles to Taiwan, provided they have the right training, their military is completely capable of learning how to fire a missile at a ship. Why do you think the chance of some sort of kinetic war is so high? Well, because Xi Jinping has publicly said, committed to the reunification of Taiwan and mainland China. If we take him at his word, he's saying that in plain sight, that he wants to reunify. He's left the option open to reunify by force if needed. He's even laid out timelines by which he wants to reunify. And he is in his late 60s. And so if he wants this to be part of his legacy, which he does, that gives us maybe a seven-year horizon max within which he might try to make a move. Outside of semiconductors, why is Taiwan strategic to the U.S.? Well, semiconductors are a big thing. But assuming we could 
create some sort of thing with them where TSMC is moving to Arizona, New Mexico, and we take out the top 100 scientists, move them to the US. Why is some random island, just to play devil's advocate, so strategic to the US? Semiconductors shouldn't be written off, but assuming we get all the scientists and we have fabs that are up and running and operational, which you know is going to take time, but assuming all of that, it's still a major corridor of international trade. Japan gets over 80% of its oil from ships that pass through the Taiwan Strait. It's a major corridor in internet infrastructure, an enormous part of the data that flows from North America to APAC flows straight through the Taiwan Strait. If China takes over Taiwan, they'll basically control the whole strait. They'll be able to tap into all those networks without any kind of guardrails. And it's also a major precedent question. And this dials back to the initial question that you asked about the comparison between Germany and the UK in the 30s is precedents really matter. And allowing Russia to invade Ukraine, allowing China to take Taiwan bit by bit is giving them the type of validation that will ultimately excite their appetite to engage in other foreign adventures. China has border disputes with 17 countries. Taiwan is one of those countries, but it's not the only one. We saw the border skirmish between China and India. Ultimately, if they successfully take Taiwan, they're not going to stop there. They're going to turn elsewhere. The other type of attack that I think a lot of folks are worried about are some sort of cyber attack. And it does seem because the U.S. is so much bigger and more open that we're more vulnerable to a cyber attack than almost any other country because we have all these vectors to attack. Even some of our best institutions that are in charge of keeping secrets, like the Office of Personnel Management and the NSA, have been hacked recently, very famously. How do we think about cyber deterrence? Deterrence really boils down to a simple equation. It's about do the costs of carrying out an attack outweigh the benefits? If the answer is no, the adversary isn't going to be deterred. And if the answer is yes, then a rational adversary would be deterred. So interestingly, there have been ideas in Congress floated about putting sanctions on entities that engage in large-scale hacking or intellectual property thefts. I find those ideas interesting and worthwhile exploring. Part of the advantage that the U.S. has is we have all these really interesting and innovative tech companies, but many of them are unwilling to sell to the U.S. military or intelligence services. What do you think is driving that unwillingness? A whole chapter in my book is dedicated to the rift between the hill and the valley. To an enormous extent, there is a real cultural difference between Silicon Valley and Capitol Hill. I talk in my book about how there's a generational gap. The average age of a member of the Senate is roughly between 61 and 63. The average age of an employee at Facebook and Google is 32. These are people that bring generational differences to how they view a similar set of facts. Most of the people in Congress have a background in legal training and are mostly former lawyers. Most of the people at tech companies are product managers and engineers. So there is a skills difference, a generational difference, a very cultural difference that people approach these issues with that's created a rift over the last few years. I also think that the world has been peaceful for so long that a lot of people, particularly idealistic engineers, 
saw working with the Pentagon more as a discretionary choice and less as a civic duty. The war in Ukraine is actually reminding everyone that defense isn't always a choice. It's sometimes a necessity to survive and that we can't take peace for granted. Most of these tech companies, Google, Apple, Facebook, Twitter, Amazon, et cetera, they're riddled with spies. Probably every smart foreign intelligence agency has spies in all of these different companies. Maybe they're just doing some low-level things, causing some dissent, jumping on Slack or their internal messaging system and causing some dissent, but maybe they're actively stealing information or doing some other things. How do you think these companies should be reacting to the spies in their midst? I think they should be collaborating quietly with our intelligence agencies on to do counter intel to frankly root them out. I think the reason why a lot of companies have been reluctant is because there's something that's a bit sad about doing a witch hunt inside of your own company. I think people love their coworkers. These are people that you interact with every day. You work on the same team. It's not something that people want to approach and it's much easier to just leave things as they stand. But I've been a proponent of the idea that we're in a cold war and China's in a cold war with us, whether we want to accept it or not. We live in an environment where you have to make decisions that are really hard. And when you have spies of a foreign adversarial government in your mix for the purpose of building trust inside of your company, you have to try to at least find who those spies are. And they're not necessarily all adversarial governments. The UK, France, Israel, India, they're all very smart intelligence agencies and they all do that as well, I presume, right? The spies that are really the most concerning are obviously the spies from adversarial government. Yeah, France doesn't have a French Google. <laughs> if they do commercial espionage or if they just want situational awareness about what's going on in Silicon Valley, that poses a very different type of risk to the U.S. than China stacking American companies with spies. There was a famous case a couple of years ago of a bunch of Saudi spies, Twitter, a lot of different folks. And sometimes it's not exactly a spy, but the spy agency could blackmail somebody who's working there because they have family in the country or something. And it does seem inevitable that there will be government agencies getting involved with these amazingly large tech companies that have so much power. One of the reasons that we have this pattern emerging is that we have a system where some of our most forward-thinking innovations are coming out of the private sector. They're not coming out of the government. As a result, the private sector has become increasingly a target of foreign espionage because that's where a lot of the innovations are coming from. It is appropriate for the U.S. government to work very closely with tech companies on counter-intel. Dina Srinivasan, a World of podcast recently, she does a lot of research on antitrust issues and monopolistic concerns of big tech. And in some ways, Facebook is, they're getting sued by a ton of different state governments and US governments, while there's competitors like TikTok, which are like super growing like a weed and in many cases eating Facebook's lunch. How do we direct our regulatory efforts to think about these different international players? The current debate on antitrust is slightly misguided. If you look at the supply and the demand side of the market, on the demand side, a lot of these goods are free. I mean, our whole antitrust doctrine is based on the question of, is a company, is a market participant abusing its dominant market position in a way that causes consumer harm? 
okay, let's look at the market. Let's look at the supply and the demand side of the market. And let's look at whether or not there's consumer harm. And if you just look dispassionately at the evidence, I find the debate very unconvincing. On the demand side of the market, most of these products are free. It's certainly very hard to make an argument that they're causing to put your finger on what the actual consumer harm is. And on the demand side of the market, are they actually inhibiting market competition? And it's really hard to draw that conclusion. In 2019 and 2020, there have been over 10,000 venture capital deals worth a combined $130 billion dollars. Is that reflective of a market that lacks competition? Are entrepreneurs actually afraid to compete with, to start a new business, to compete with Google and Facebook? Certainly doesn't seem like it. And it doesn't seem like venture capitalists are afraid of a lack of competition. 89% of startups have successfully raised capital in the last few years. In just six years, Shopify went from being valued over $1 billion dollars to over $184 billion. Shopify is obviously a competitor to Amazon. I don't really buy the current debate on antitrust. There is a bit of a contradiction between the people that level antitrust allegations against big tech also level extraordinary requests to those companies with respect to having higher, adopting higher cybersecurity standards, trust and safety standards. And it's a little bit hard to do both. I mean, if you want to break up these companies, it's really hard for those companies to also have the same resources to invest in higher cybersecurity and trust and safety standards. As of July, 2020, Facebook had a total of 35,000 people working on issues related to safety and security across the company. And that's the kind of apparatus you're able to get when you have scale. During the interwar period and in late up to World War II, President Roosevelt issued an executive order instructing the DOJ to suspend antitrust investigations into the automotive industry to prioritize the rearmament effort. To me, that's the kind of precedent that is relevant to the situation we find ourselves in today. I think that antitrust investigations against these companies is not particularly constructive. China owns, I think, about $1 trillion of U.S. debt, which I think is about 4% of the total. And some people say this gives China leverage over the U.S., but other people say, actually, this gives U.S. leverage over China. What are your thoughts on this? A lot of people often say, oh, China owns so much of our debt. They own about a trillion. So it's about 3.68% of the total. It's a good chunk, but people sometimes talk about it as though they own over 50% of our debt. Japan owns more debt than China today. If China tries a sudden massive sell-off of U.S. debt, or conversely, if we tried to essentially revoke China's debt claims against American debt, these are fairly uncharted waters. So it's a little bit hard to predict what might happen. And I would be very skeptical and reluctant to advise on weaponizing American debt, it could have second or third order effects that we're not totally aware of with respect to the other bondholders of American treasury bonds. With that being said, $1 trillion is more money for China than it is for us. From that standpoint, I think that on balance, it actually does give us slightly more leverage because for us, it's less money than it is for them. 
What's the optimistic scenario with the US and China? China is, is an ascendant power. It will continue to be a very important power, certainly for our lifetimes at the very least, and probably forever. It's an incredible place with incredibly talented people, with obviously lots of people, great long culture, et cetera. It would be a much better world where we were close allies with China. How does that world happen? China has gone through many different permutations. It has always been and will always be an important power. The story has yet to be written about whether or not it becomes the hegemonic power and whether or not this regime that's in charge today, the CCP, is the regime that is at the helm to take China to those heights. I think you're starting to see some of the limits of having an economic, a high level of economic growth and a growing middle class, and at the same time having an authoritarian regime. You're seeing those limits by how more repressive and more dystopian the regime is becoming at home, how it's basically tried to crack down on any type of alternative power base inside of China, particularly across its tech industry. I wouldn't necessarily assume that the CCP will always be in charge of China. We wouldn't be having the vast majority of the issues with China that we have today if we had a more liberal democratic China. The core of the issue in American-China relations is the fact that they are an authoritarian regime. That is really the root of all of the tensions. Fundamentally, I don't think Americans would care that much if China overtook us, if they were democratic, because they wouldn't threaten us. They would be a market opportunity. We could live in a world that where people are empowered to fulfill their God-given potential, and we wouldn't be living in a world that risks falling back into the same kind of dystopian authoritarian patterns of the past. A couple of personal questions before we go. You were very early on the trend of moving out of San Francisco. You moved to Miami. I also very recently moved out of San Francisco, though. I don't think I'm cool enough to move to Miami. If I moved to Florida, I'd probably go to Tampa or something. Do you think San Francisco's will have like net outflows for many years to come? Or do you think there's a way for the city to come back? I would distinguish San Francisco from California as a whole. San Francisco is probably going to have net outflows. I think it's going to take a long time for the city to come back to the levels of when we lived there. It was a boom town. The economy was bustling with energy. The extraordinary sense of possibility that was pervasive in the air in San Francisco during the- In every cafe, certainly if you were there in anywhere from 2004 through 2015 or something like that. I don't know if you've been there recently, but I was there for just a couple of days, not too long ago, driving through the streets of the mission. And I kept getting flashbacks of what the city was like, you know, during those years. And I mean, today it's just, everything is boarded up. There's no one in the streets. It's absolutely desolate. And now that so many tech companies have decentralized outside of the Bay Area, I just don't see how that is going to come back quickly. I do think that California benefits from an extraordinary climate. And I think LA, if the business environment improves a little bit, LA will probably be the main beneficiary of that. I think people will probably choose to live there. Within California, I don't see San Francisco coming back for a while. It has sustained such a massive economic blow that I think it's going to take a very long time to rebuild. 
Okay, we're keeping this podcast on March 15th, 2022. I haven't yet put my home on the market in San Francisco yet. So I'm really hoping that all these things don't disappear before we do that. Did you sold your home or? It's on the market. Hopefully we both sell it before everything collapses. All right, last question we ask all of our guests. What is the conventional wisdom or advice that you think is generally bad advice? In the field of foreign policy, there is a tendency to really like complexity. And there is this idea that the world is so complex, solutions to problem have to be equally complex. A lot of the times, putting your finger on what the key issues are and what the right solutions are to those issues actually simply requires identifying and prioritizing three or four macro trends. This is actually something that to a great extent, I've learned observing the way that my husband and to some extent, the way that Peter has publicly made a lot of- Peter Thiel is who you're referring to, right? Yes, Peter Thiel. Is they do an extraordinary job at isolating signal from noise. In the foreign policy space, you know, you'll often hear experts preface, you know, the world is so complex, it's so interconnected, everything is so complicated. I actually don't think that's a good way to reason. If you think the world is so complex and you use that as a justification to have a very muddled response, that's actually a red flag. Sometimes identifying what are the high-level patterns and dynamics at work and what should the response be to factor in those patterns and dynamic, that's the kind of clarity that's needed for a good response. Whenever I talk to someone steeped in foreign policy, and we've had a few people as guests, including Richard Haas, who's the president of Council of Foreign Relations, they often use the term like strategic ambiguity. They use a lot of these somewhat wishy-washy terms. Like, why is that so steeped in the foreign policy establishment? The foreign policy establishment is a very wonky space. It's a space that has a lot of really smart people that spend a lot of time absorbing a lot of data points. Steve Jobs used to joke that if you throw a thousand pencils at someone, they're not going to catch any of them. But if you throw three, they might catch it. It's really great to absorb so much information. That doesn't mean that all data points should be weighed equally. Sometimes there's a bit of a tendency to give equal weight to a lot of different factors that aren't necessarily as important. And so the skill of prioritizing is actually a skill that the private sector lends itself very well to because in the private sector, if you don't have that skill, usually you don't survive as a company. It works a little bit differently in the government. I mean, in the government, you're not really your performance. There's always a quote unquote portfolio. There's a portfolio and you can prioritize one thing or prioritize a million things, but the government's going to stay in business. And so you're not really evaluated in the same way. Your brain isn't trained to think the same way. I hate to sound cliche, but I do think that this is a skill that the private sector has actually done a very good job at developing and that there's a lot of interesting takeaways that the public sector could use. I follow you on Twitter, Jacob Helberg, at Jacob Helberg on Twitter. Where else should people find you on the interwebs? Twitter's probably the best place. I've read a few articles on Foreign Policy Magazine that I'm happy to see, you know, still prove prescient nowadays. And, you know, I encourage everyone to go buy the book, The Wires of War on Amazon. Please buy that book, Wires of War. Thank you, uh, Jake Helberg. Really appreciate you on World of Deaths. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks for having me on. I really enjoyed it. 
Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, consider rating this podcast and leaving a review. For more World of DAS, and DAS is D-A-A-S, you can subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts. And also check out YouTube for videos. You can find me at Twitter at at Oren, that's A-U-R-E-N, Oren, and we'd love to hear from you.